Hello and welcome again to another edition of Irreligiosophy, the one true podcast where we have been starving ourselves for religious freedom since January 2009. Yeah, that seems too soon. It hasn't been two or three weeks since our last podcast. That's true. Uh, now, are we sure we're the ones that have been starving for religious freedom, or has it been Pakti who has been starving for religious freedom? Through our Thai children, we have been starving for religious freedom. Yes, much like religion's way of praying on a certain item and blessing people, we do the same. Pakti and his starvation is our holy water. Is Pakti Hindu? I thought he was Thai. I know. <laughs> Never thought to ask. <laughs> well, he was brown. Uh, isn't it all the same if they're brown? Jesus. <laughs> so, what we're going to do is something a little different this week. Um, Leighton has really gotten tired of being called the dumb one, and I've been. No, not uh, really. I've, I actually enjoy being called the dumb one. I've actually gotten really tired of doing all the work, so we Kiss flipped it around. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do an episode on Hinduism. This is, uh, what, the third largest uh, after yeah. Christianity and Islam? Yeah, third largest after Christianity and Islam. And the funny thing is, is Islam and uh, Hinduism, they hate each other. So, um, Leighton has done the vast majority of research. And uh, what I've done is what Leighton typically does, which is... Um, Spend Once again, kiss my ass. <laughs> six or seven minutes reading the Wikipedia entry on the current topic. Ah, uh, yes, yes, because uh, we all know that Charlie knows how to shut his mouth on a subject and lets other people talk. I am totally going to shut my mouth for this whole program. Wow, that'll be a first for you. Uh, can your you know pride handle it, Mister Doctor Man? Oh, really? Is this the silent treatment? Well, okay, in that case, uh, I don't need Charlie for this. <laughs> Where's Pakti? I need Pakti for this. <laughs> well, I guess we got to do the skunk dick of the week, right? Well, we got to do at least something. So we have gathered for you um, three candidates for skunk dick of the week. Uh, and uh, they're actually pretty entertaining ones. I, I think we should start with the main GOP and they're forced to apologize after a convention. And the reason why is they, <laughs> these Republicans who stand up for family values and uh, religious freedom vandalized an eighth grade classroom. I did not know what happened to the main Republicans uh, this season. They, they've been uh, hijacked by the Tea Party, and their Republican platform is uh, insane. It's just frankly insane. It's kind of this libertarian, tea party, gun-toting, Department of Education-hating uh, platform. It's bizarre. Anyway, they're in this, was it like an elementary or junior high? Uh, it was an eighth grade, so that would have been junior high. I'm glad you can do the math. So so uh, the the teacher gets back, and his classroom, <laughs> he is a collage-type poster depicting the history of the U.S. labor movement on his door. Uh, and when he came back, it was torn down and replaced with a sticker that said, Working People Vote Republican. <laughs> yeah, because we all know that working people always vote Republican, and that there's absolutely nothing wrong with tearing down, oh, a freedom of speech poster. 
Why do these assholes think they have the right to touch the guy's classroom at all? Well, you know, the worst part about it is they started going through his stuff. They were opening up like a closed cardboard box, and they started screaming about what they found in there. And, of course, it was a, a constitution donated to the school by the American Civil Liber Liberties Union. Yeah, it was uh, a closed cardboard box. They took it upon themselves to open it and were offended by the fact that it contained copies of the U.S. Constitution. Now, they happened to be donated by the ACLU, which apparently they found extremely offensive. But for God's sakes, if the ACLU donated Bibles, would you guys be offended? The content is the same, dipshits. It's the goddamn Constitution. Well, you know what really pisses me off about these guys is not only did they target this teacher... But they started targeting the students. They started going after the student art. Yeah, that's a great way to teach them that they have freedom of speech and the freedom to come out there and do what they want to do. Uh, it's amazing to me. So apparently they, they apologized um, after vandalizing this 8th grade classroom. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Well, probably after they got letters from the 8th graders saying, I am not brainwashed, I am not a puppet, I am not anti-American or anti-religious, and not, I'm certainly not stupid. Their brains have not been washed in the blood of Jesus. Had they been brainwashed, they wouldn't have been vandalized. The classroom wouldn't have been vandalized. Either that or they've been brainwashed inappropriately. They're not against brainwashing, they just want the control to, to brainwash these children in their hands. Alright, well, I think we've uh, just shown the retardation of the main GOP enough, and uh, I think we should move on to uh, the hospital nun that was rebuked for allowing an abortion. This is my personal favorite. The, uh, there was a young woman who was 11 weeks pregnant, alright? So 11 weeks. She is uh, about three months shy of having a viable fetus. So if this baby isn't going to live outside the womb, right? Yeah. Now, the uh, mother was uh, suffering from pulmonary hypertension. That, that's high blood pressure in the vessels of the lungs. Now, if this continues, you end up filling the lungs with water and dying. They had a you hospital... You can't breathe underwater? I thought the Catholics had found a way to do that. The, the ethics board and the hospital all agreed that it was necessary to terminate the pregnancy. So basically, I see three options here. Uh, one, and, and the best option, is uh, you thwart God's will and terminate the pregnancy and uh, thereby save the life of the mother. Uh, option number two is to allow God's will to be done, nature to take its course, and both baby and mother die. Uh, the third option would be um, you bring in a priest and he blesses the baby so that it grows wings and it flies out of mom's vagina and miraculously uh, exists outside of the womb until it comes to term. Those, those are your three options. So all the doctors um, and the nun on the ethics committee, they, they all were of the same mind. It was necessary to terminate the baby to save the life of the mother. And yep. uh, it seems that, that this was the correct decision for everyone involved. So what happened to the mother? That's a big question. Uh, she, of course, survived after uh, aborting the 11-week pregnancy. That is answered by Bishop Thomas J. Olmsted, head of the Phoenix Diocese. Now, talk about heaping insults onto everything else. They automatically excommunicated this woman. 
because she had the abortion. Well, sure. It's incumbent upon you, I think, as uh, someone who is not medically trained and a believer in superstitious dipshittery, uh, to come in not familiar with the case and lay judgment down on everyone who's involved. He says, uh, so she was automatically excommunicated to give the action. He, he rebuked the nun. He said, I, I am gravely concerned by the fact that an abortion was performed several months ago in a Catholic hospital in this diocese. I am further concerned by the hospital statement that the termination of a human life was necessary to treat the mother's underlying medical condition. Hey, Bishop, fuck you. Where did you go to medical school, dipshit? Do you have a, a line from God telling you? It, because let us know if there's some other treatment, asshole. Fuck yeah. you. I love how he says that the child is not a disease. Are you kidding me? I don't know if there's any other disease out there that saps so much from a woman. The child is basically Listen, sucking every nutrient out of them. Pregnancy is the most common sexually transmitted disease. <laughs> that thing is a fucking parasite for nine months. Scratch that. That fu fucking eighteen thing. years. That fucking thing is a parasite for eighteen years. <laughs> yeah, don't give me this crap about it not being a disease. That's exactly what children are. They are diseases that affect you for eighteen years. An unborn child is not a disease, he says. While medical professionals should certainly try to save a pregnant mother's life, the means by which they do it can never be by directly killing her unborn child. Oh my God! Okay, yeah. well, let us know what what's the cure for um, pregnancy-induced pulmonary hypertension, uh, Mr. Bishop? Uh, you because have a tube down her lungs, obviously. Because we'd really like to know if we could save both the fetus and the mother. Let us know. Why don't you go over there and pour some fucking holy water on her and give her a fucking blessing if you're so concerned? I'm sure God can prevent that pulmonary hypertension. He can treat it. Why didn't you do that? Why do you only care after the fact? Yeah, and I'm an sure asshole. the doctors over there, including this nun, were all about killing the child. That's, that's the first thing on their agenda. They didn't sit around and argue about this for a long time. It was just, oh, let's just kill the child. It doesn't matter. This guy has no medical knowledge whatsoever, and here he is, passing judgment in contravention of Jesus' judge not lest ye be judged. Passing judgment on this mother whose lungs are filling up with water uh, the longer that that pregnancy remains. So, uh, fuck you, Bishop Olmsted, or whatever your goddamn name is. All right, enough of that. Let, let's move on to the third skunk dick candidate, who is our favorite, well, our second favorite crazy evangelical Christian, Ken Ham. Yeah, now my first question about this guy is he has this, this big old banner up top that says, Around the World with Ken Ham. And he shows his picture, and the dude looks like somebody shot him in the face with a shotgun. Why would you post your picture if you look like that? He's got one of the creepiest smiles I've ever seen. It's like, you know, when you try to make a robot have emotions, their eyes are totally <laughs> dead, and there's a smile on their face. It's just creepy as hell. I look at him, and I wonder, does he drive a van with no windows that says free candy on the side? I look at him, and I think he drives a horse and buggy. Around the world with Ken Ham in 40 years. God, it's like he just rolled off the Amish plantation. Yeah, um, yeah, anyway. He's all up in arms about uh, Groupon. Groupon.com, which is a website that promotes a deal of the day where businesses can offer their product or service for at least 50% off, right? So yeah. he actually signed a contract to advertise with them in the Cincinnati area. But they canceled the week of their advertisement because the Creation Museum was, quote, 
too controversial. You think? Now, th this is the great part, because he starts getting all up in arms going, well, these guys, they, uh, they offer things to, oh, I don't know, uh, you know, parks out there, and, uh, oh, I know, the family, or the history museum. Yeah, he mentions, he mentions laser tag, spas, lawn care. However, in other markets, such as Atlanta, they have featured the local natural history museum. Uh, <laughs> Which, of course, is totally evolutionary and teaches children that man is evolved from an animal. But I but guess, I guess not that is not controversial. Uh, <laughs> listen, Ken. A, it isn't controversial. B, don't uh, compare yourself to a natural history museum. You are to a natural history museum as Disneyland is to NASA. All right? You live in a world of goddamn fantasy. You have nothing to do with reality. You are in a museum in no sense of the word. You shouldn't, by law, and, and the laws of false advertising, you should be forced to, to rename your goddamn complex. The creation complex. The thing I love about these sorts of people is that as soon as one of their little things gets shot down, they start screaming about other people, other Christians. And this is an exact quote a lot of homeschoolers have used Groupon to get good deals, but maybe they will think twice about using a company that considers the Creation Museum, and by implication the Bible and the Christian faith, too controversial to allow us to advertise. Listen, Ken, you, are, you represent a fringe, fanatical, extreme version of Christianity that, uh, relatively speaking, very few other people subscribe to. Um, so don't compare yourselves to mainstream Christianity. Uh, again, uh, and don't don't try the reverse. They say we certainly don't need Groupon, and apparently they don't need our business. Maybe they don't want any Christians' business. Don't don't pull that because I would I would say what eighty percent of of Christians would think that you're an absolute moron, and the other twenty percent probably live in in Alabama, <laughs> Texas, hey, maybe. Hey, don't forget Missouri. Missouri. <laughs> Why Missouri? <laughs> well, because my parents want to move there, and I figure that's a good spot for crazies. Missouri is the south of the north. <laughs> <laughs> that's where All the right. south sends the people too crazy to live in the south. <laughs> All right, let's feed that into our trusty computer and see what it, what we got. What's your vote? Uh, my vote is going to be the main GOP. Those guys are just dicks, and they need their asses kicked. Yeah, Bishop Olmstead's my vote for the dipshit, uninformed asshole who thinks that he knows medicine better than the doctors, and, and yeah. he knows ethics better than the ethics committee. All right, let's load that into the computer. Stand by. Charlie, oh what the fuck did you do to the Oh, my God. What happened? <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, apparently, the skunk dickery was too much this week. Uh, the computer has uh, severely crashed. Okay. I I've seen the computer act up when we discuss Mims Carter, but I've never seen it do this before. Yeah. I'm going to have to print out a, a log of what happened. I suspect Glenn Beck has something to do with it. Well, if you're fiddling with a log, I don't want to see it. <laughs> Let's get to the uh, main substance of the podcast, Hinduism.
All right, that's good. Uh, what have you prepared this week? Because, uh, you know, you're taking lead, right? Like I said, I uh, have done exactly as much uh, preparation as you typically do, so I'll just <laughs> sit back and do color commentary. Yeah, yeah, kid. Oh, you're going to do color commentary. All right. It's my job. You're t- <laughs> <laughs> so wait, wait, are we saying that from here on out my job is to do nothing but offer color commentary? What the hell have you been doing up to this point? Well, I guess nothing more than that, so I think I should continue. (laughs) I don't feel so bad about this podcast anymore. All right. uh, Truthfully, how all this got started is I guess uh, Charlie was reading a comment somewhere, and uh, someone wanted me to do a lead on the podcast because they wanted me to do the Catholic Church, but that's too boring, so I said let's do Hinduism. Yeah, that so. was too much work, I think, for your exact words. <laughs> so wait, 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 wait. You're saying that doing the Catholic Church would be less work than looking into a completely new faith that is absolutely insane. More insane than the Catholic Church, really? Uh, with, with regards to their gods, more insane than the Catholic Church. Well, hit us. <laughs> all right, all right, well. I'd just like to say this is, podcast is going really smoothly so far. You know, I'm just going to masturbate on my keyboard. (laughs) Strong work. After all, that's all I ever do in these podcasts, as it is apparent. Would you shut the hell up so I can actually get a word in? Aren't you supposed to shut up? Right. Lead us. All right. The interesting thing is uh, the earliest evidence for prehistoric religion in India dates back to the Neolithic period, which is about 5500 to 2600 BCE. Now, the Indus Valley is uh, where this civilization uh, first appeared, and that was about 2800 to 2000 BCE, and most people will claim that that's where Hinduism got its start. Um, So by by this time, Egypt has become uh, already a unified nation. Yeah, and it already has uh, all of its uh, religious features kind of fixed and intact. Yeah, yeah, we're we're talking about Narmer's palette has already been uh, brought forward. Uh, it yeah, about, has been unified, and right by about three hundred years after Narmer's palette and the unification of Egypt is when the, they started moving into the. I mean, I suppose it's the oldest continuous, continuously practiced religion. Is that the claim? That's the claim right there. Now uh, uh, that's probably true. They, Oldest they, living major tradition. Yeah, yeah. Now they claim uh, a lot of people claim that the religion came about when the Indus Valley civilization came about. However, the earliest Vedas, uh, where uh, where their scripture is actually written down, doesn't occur until about twelve hundred to nine hundred BCE. So it, it's very difficult to put any sort of claim on how far back this religion goes without archaeological evidence. So because, like any other religion, it starts out orally and gets transmitted orally, and then someone decides to set it down yeah. hundreds or, or thousands of years afterwards. Yeah, which is exactly what happened. Now, modern Hinduism actually grew out of these Vedas, the oldest of which is the Rig Veda, and that was dated to 1700 to 1100 BCE. So, so that, that's actually about 2,300 years after the world was created. Yes. Wasn't That's now, about the time of the flood, isn't it? <laughs> 2,300 <laughs> B.C.? I'm just trying to figure out where the Tower of Babel fits into all of this. Yeah, I think actually, according to Kent Hovind, 
that was uh, either 1900 BC or 2100 or something like that. Okay, um, so, so the uh, the Indians they uh, they had 200 years to create not only their entire language <laughs> but their entire civilization and religion up to this point. <laughs> this was, I guess, one of uh, Noah's kids who came up with Hinduism, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was just pulling shit out of his ass and thought, hey. <laughs> Before we get started, actually, uh, the term Hindu is a Persian name for the Indus River. Basically, when uh, when they came into the uh, the Delhi Sultanate, they were referring to that uh, as the native Indians. And then, of course, it became uh, more popular when the English took over in the 17th century, and they were using Hindu to describe kind of the Indian pagan that was involved. So that's actually uh, how Hinduism got its start, is from Persia and the Indus River. Why the Indus River? Was this where the, this is the valley with the river where they settled originally, or was this something that someone else named? Well, this is the Indus Valley Civilization. So the Indus River is actually feeding to it, and the Indus River becomes very important later on with some of their uh, their spiritual ways. In fact, at one point, with if you follow certain uh, certain criteria, you can bathe in the Indus River and have all of your sins and all of your karma wiped clean. Now, as Charlie mentioned, uh, yeah, Hinduism is the world's third largest religion, and uh, it has approximately one billion adherents. Now, uh, the most fascinating aspect is approximately 828 million live in the Republic of India. So they're all just kind of clumped up. I mean, we're talking eight-tenths of all Hinduism is in India itself. With that, though, since it's such a diverse religion and so hard to pin down and so hard to say what is Hindu and what is not uh, and encapsulate so many different diverse beliefs, how do they how do they know who really is Hindu? I mean, how accurate are those numbers? Well, it, uh, it's, it's very difficult. I mean... We are only going to be able to scratch the surface of this. Hinduism has branched out to so many different kinds of Hinduism. I mean, in the 5th century BCE, Buddhism and Jainism came from India. This, this, these were separate branches that broke off from India, or excuse me, Hinduism. Now, there are actually six generic types of Hinduism, but only two of them are really... Uh, really followed in this day and age, and that's the Vedic religion and the Shramana religion. <laughs> uh, just just as a warning, half of these names popping out, I- I'm going to pronounce wrong. We all know it, so just accept it. Fifty percent would be impressive. <laughs> Fifty my ass. You ought to see some of these words. <laughs> now, which of these uh, comes the uh, Kama Sutra? Ah, that's the yogic uh, Hinduism uh, that uh, can act, yoga is actually a part of all Hinduism. Um, there are different different kinds of yoga that bring uh, physical mastery, spiritual mastery, so on and so forth. So the yogic traditions are actually uh, throughout Hinduism. So is it true that if you are uh, this super yoga that you can actually levitate yourself and fly off the air with, just what? through meditation? Here I thought you were going to ask me if you could hit the G spot so hard that her brain would explode, but uh, <laughs> we can go down that track. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 
yeah. you brought up the Kama I've... Sutra. Where, where else do I think you're going with that? I, I should have kept going with that Kama Sutra. Apparently there are over 60 sexual positions, and this Kama Sutra was uh, written down uh, fairly anciently, wasn't it? Yeah, actually the Kama Sutra was uh, reportedly first written down in 250 A.D., so so we're talking it's it's been around for almost a couple thousand years up to this point. Which of those on which page of the Kama Sutra can I find how to do a Cleveland steamer? That is on page 18. <laughs> I have studied it in depth. And uh, in fact, uh, I'm pretty sure I'd better find me some flexible woman to study the rest. All right. Well, um <laughs> I don't know what else to say. <laughs> oh, come on, funny man. You're supposed to keep it going. I'm the one bringing out the information. Are there any methods of contraception uh, listed in the Kama Sutra? Uh, no. <laughs> no, it, it, in fact, there were there were some... Uh, I don't think it was Indian. Uh, it was kind of an outskirts of India. But uh, there were some traditions where it was thought spiritually viable for a woman to go to a temple and have a man walk up, flip a coin in her lap, and then she'll have go, go have sex with him because she can't turn him down. But that, that's not Hinduism. That was kind of the outskirts. That's called prostitution. <laughs> no. No, this was every woman who has been married to a man, when they first get married to the man, they have to go out and have random sexual relations. Does she get to keep the coin? I should hope so if he's flipping it at her. <laughs> then that's prostitution. <laughs> Enforced prostitution by society, yes. <laughs> Sex for money. Yeah. All right, uh, back to your two traditions. What's the oh. difference between these two? Well, we're going to stay away from that. And the reason why... <laughs> no, I am not kidding you. Have you, you tried to look into this, and you even told me that you were even scratching your head. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do the generics of Hinduism. We're just going to concentrate on the overlying theme of it. Yeah, which, again, I feel for you because it's so complicated and, and encompasses so many different diverse beliefs that uh, we'll probably have to do a follow-up to this, um, yeah. you know, kind of zeroing in on one aspect of it. Um, exactly. The overall is ex extremely complicated and complex. Yeah. And more than likely, I will shoot myself in the face because I was dating this Vietnamese girl, and she was studying Hinduism philosophies. And my God, if you want to find yourself bored witless, read something like that. It It is, um, <laughs> it's one of the few religions that embrace, um, atheism. Yeah. As one yeah, of the possibilities. Fact, um, they have such a diverse system of thoughts and beliefs that they span monotheism, polytheism, pantheism, monism, and atheism. And, uh, basically it's concepts of God is so complex <laughs> And it depends on the particular tradition and philosophy that uh, that what makes God up. I mean, this is why Hinduism is just so widespread and just funky. Yeah, um, these Eastern religions, uh, you know, Hinduism and uh, Buddhism, especially the flavor um, that developed in Japan, uh, I think are a lot more interesting than uh, Christian monotheism or Islam or any of the Abrahamic religions especially philosophically. I mean, you'd probably be bored witless. Uh, I love that stuff. Love it. Okay, when they started talking about seeing a uh, a golden shell on a beach and the perceived thought that 
that was actually gold until they walked up and no, actually it was a silver shell, but close enough. But they actually walked up, saw that it was a shell, and some believe that when you saw it and it was silver, then it really was silver, and others think it was just a perception in the brain. How many times can you argue that? It's a goddamn shell on a beach. I'm sorry, um, I heard the words golden shower and uh, kind of faded out there. <laughs> well, it was golden shell, by oh. the way, and if there was a golden shower, I'm... <laughs> I don't even want to know what you and your wife do for it's kicks. This, is this really urine streaming on my face or uh, just the perception? Did you, get, did you get stung by a jellyfish? Is that why you got a golden shower? I was thinking we were back to the Kama Sutra, but apparently not. Yes, some some yes, sort of golden page shell. That's um. <laughs> All right, so... So a broad way of looking at, at Hinduism is that they're henotheistic. Basically, they have one god, but they accept the existence of others. And uh, this is just a very broad overgeneralization of Hinduism. So, so bear with us on this. Now, most Hindus actually believe that uh, the spirit or soul, the true self, is called the Atman, and it is eternal. No comments on the Atman? No. <laughs> what do you want me to say? They I don't have, know. I had something to say about that. <laughs> they have this idea that it's a kind of like the Gnostic um, Christianity, that it's a kind of like a spark of the divine or or a, a piece of a whole. I guess there are two different types uh, of thinking on that. One is that you're a piece of the whole and you go and you join and become God. And the other is that you uh, kind of return to a paradise where you kind of bask in God's glory or something like that. Wow, very impressive. You actually did look into a little bit of this. I told now, you. Uh, <laughs> I did the uh, latent amount of research on this thing. Oh, well, I would have at least known that the Atman and the part where they are indistinct from the Supreme Spirit or the Brahman, this is why I was laughing. <laughs> we have the Atman and the Brahman, and they're both spirits, so I like this. Why? But uh, why is that funny again? Brahman, come on! Brahman, <laughs> just got it. Sorry. Um, <laughs> wow, uh, this is what I have to put up with when you're the jokester. I believe it, you know it's termed Brahman, and I was thrown by the H in the middle. But uh, okay, Brahman. I it's gotcha. just separating it out so you can see the bra. I, I gotcha. <laughs> Continue. All right, all right. So, like Charlie said, uh, one school of thought is that you are indistinct from the Brahman. The other school of thought is that you will have a soul that's identical to the Supreme Soul. And uh interesting thing is the Upanishads believe that uh, whoever becomes <laughs> are you, fully... Are you interested in the proper pronunciation, or should I just let that go? Am I ever interested in yeah, the proper Never mind. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, basically, they believe whoever becomes fully aware of the Atman as the innermost core of oneself realizes an identity with the Brahman and thereby reaches the Moksha, or liberation or freedom. Yeah, well, what are they liberated from? Uh, that <laughs> is very deep. It's actually liberated from... It deals with... They have four avenues in life. Now, uh, it's believed... Shit, you made me skip down. Now, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's this endless cycle of of karma, and that imprints uh, 
on your soul. Your actions kind of imprint karma on your soul. Your karma determines your destiny. So you're moving, kind of dying, being born again, living, and uh, your escape is from that cycle. Yes. Um, that's that becomes a lot more clear in Buddhism when you know the guy says that the, this cycle is essentially suffering, right? You escape from suffering. Yeah. In Hinduism, it's not it's not entirely suffering. There are some pleasures, right? Um, there are some physical pleasures, there are material pleasures, there are erotic pleasures, and that's part of that cycle. So escaping, I guess, gives you true happiness, not a lesser pleasure, but um, it's uh, it's like attaining the ultimate enlightenment, actually. Right. Uh, nirvana. Nirvana. Now, uh, interestingly enough, is it actually deals a lot with their four stages of their life. Now, they have, of course, the Brahmacharya, which uh, takes place during the school years and is focused on acquiring knowledge, developing character. Then they have the Grastha, which is the middle years and focused on worldly pursuits and pleasures such as family, marriage, career. Then they have the Vanaprastha, which is uh, when all your children have reached adulthood, it's time to increase focus on your spiritual things. And then finally, which is where this comes, uh, comes to a head, is the Sangasu. In the last years of your life, you abandon the world entirely for a life of contemplation. That's kind of the ultimate goal there and uh, the ultimate intent of becoming completely aware with the, uh, with the Brahmin and uh, moving towards moksha, liberation or freedom. So in order to be an atheist Hindu, you kind of have to strip it from the spiritual component and go back to the original idea of Hinduism, which essentially was concerned with ethics, right? Yeah. I mean, you yeah. don't have to believe that you're a spirit and you're going to attain... Uh, some nirvana with uh, our good Lord, <laughs> whatever the Indian name for Jesus Christ is. Um, well, we'll get to that. They're, they actually have uh, roughly a godhead. They have three main gods. But essentially, I mean, you can strip it and take kind of the ethical teachings of it. Be nice to other people, you know, um, try to do things that will increase your karma. Although karma is kind of a spiritual concept anyway. Yeah, now we'll, we'll actually get into karma, and they have four basic beliefs that, uh, that we'll run into, and karma is one of them, but, but you're absolutely right. They, atheists and seekers of truth are accepted into Hinduism, and they can basically pick and choose. It's the a la carte of Hinduism, basically. Perfect. Well, yes. <laughs> that's, you know, that's why I kind of prefer these sort of Eastern... Uh, religions to the it could be just tolerance is one reason diversity is another, but uh, this idea that there are many paths to the truth um, uh, seems to me superior than the one true religion. Except when it comes to podcasts, because as we all know, there is only one true podcast. Yes. Now, you have actually hit on an excellent point. Now, we have discussed in uh, in previous podcasts about how it was very accepting of uh, of uh, <laughs> wow I completely lost my train of thought oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, shit what's uh, it's a right, hard job isn't it no kiss my ass actually you made me think of something completely off off topic but <laughs> now we've done earlier podcasts about this specific thing where polytheism is actually more accepting than monotheism and the reason why is the way polytheism looks at it is 
oh, well, you know, you've got a god that you're following, that's fine, we've got our own gods that we follow, whereas monotheism likes to force and say, you know what, there's only one true god and you are wrong. Right. And it's, when, a, it's a complete when, difference. When you have only one god, it's an all-or-nothing proposition. Either you're a believer or you're not a believer. When you have many gods, who cares which one you happen to believe in? It's more of a, a business transaction where you you know you want something from this particular god and so you sacrifice to him, or you try not to piss off all of the gods. You know, you not to you try to behave in such a way as you don't piss any gods off. Yeah, yeah. Now, previously you were uh, you were asking uh, what exactly they call God, and so I'm <laughs> I didn't say it because I couldn't pronounce half of it without looking at it. But you have your choices. You have Ishvara, Bhagavan, Parameshwara. <laughs> so take your pick on which one you want to call God in Hinduism. What about Shiva and Vishnu and Ganesh? No, no, those are the actual God's names. Now, Ishvara means the Lord, Bhagavan means the auspicious one, and uh, Parameshwara means the Supreme Lord. Now, we'll get into that because Shiva is actually the god above all gods. He's part of their three, but uh, he is the god of gods. So we'll get to that in a minute. But that is how you refer to him if you're not going to use his name, Lord Shiva. Oh, I see. Um, so the trinity is not Brahma, Shiva, and Vishnu. It's those three unpronounceable words you just said. <laughs> That's true, but... <laughs> Now that you've spoiled the Trinity, thank you very much. <laughs> Which one of those is the Holy Ghost? That's all I'm interested in knowing. <laughs> well, that would probably be Shiva's wife, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get on. <laughs> all right, so it's kind of crazy because they have, they have things in their scriptures known as divas and avatars. Now, it, they, in their scriptures, they refer to celestial entities called divas, the shining ones, which are translated into English as gods or heavenly beings. All right, so... So, so essentially, um, these are like the angels, is that what it is? Yeah, they're the kind of the of, angels. Of Hinduism. And, and that's why you see, uh, like, a person who's very special is down there, and they got, like, the glow around them. It's much like Christianity, where every time Jesus is up there, he's got a glow behind his head. Gotcha. So, Jesus is a diva. Isn't he an avatar? Isn't he more likely an avatar? All right, yeah, maybe he's more likely an avatar, but I, I like to call him a diva because I could see him in high <laughs> heels and a skirt. So what exactly is an avatar? The avatar is basically the descent of God to Earth in corporal form. So basically, God comes down, or one of their gods comes down, and he tries to restore their dharma, which is basically... Uh, the law or the religious living, basically what they need to do to live righteously. And he also kind of guides them towards their moksha or the ultimate spiritual goal, the release from the bonds of transmigration. So that is basically what an avatar is. He is one of the gods coming down in physical form. So when did this idea um, pop into Hinduism, this avatar idea? Let me, let me take a, a big whopping guess and say that it predates Christianity's avatar idea. Yeah, yeah. Now we're talking, uh, this is one of their earliest, earliest writings back in the Vedas, which uh, predates, if we're going off the 1200 to 900 BCE writings, this predates the Bible by at least 300 years. 
Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, it was probably put together, what, in the 7th century B.C. Um, so, and it predates Christianity by nearly a millennium. So it certainly yeah. had time to diffuse throughout society, and these ideas uh, come out. Um, and the, the idea that, say, God was made flesh, right? That's not a new idea. <laughs> these people think that, you know, oh, you know, in Christianity it's unique that God came down himself to 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 show people you know what to do and how to live life blah 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 this is unprecedented it's totally unique no and you know it cut reading all of this and finding out about the avatars so on and so forth it kind of made me think back to one of our first guest episodes Becky Garrison where she was talking about the reason why she believes Christianity is true is because it hasn't gone the way of other religions like the Greeks and the thought popped into my head, you know what, if we would have known more about Hinduism, we could have slapped her in the face with this. Billion Hindus, a billion Hindus. Um, and it is, uh, <laughs> it's been around longer than Christianity, uh, longer than um, Judaism, as it exists today anyway. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the only way they trump that is they say the earth is 6,000 years old and, you know, God came down and <laughs> with Adam and, you know, gave Judaism and Christianity to Adam. Uh, but all the religions do that. There And there is nothing unique about Christianity. Nothing. No. No. And you try to get that across to uh, to a Christian, and they either get upset at you or they just say, well, you're misinformed. Yeah. So, <laughs> at right. any rate, let, let's move on to what... Hindus actually believe. They, they've got four main beliefs, and uh, the first one, of course, is karma. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to just completely butcher this. This comes from Yajur Vida Brihadarayanka Upanishad 4.4.5. Excellent. It's, yeah, thank you. Now it's our good. listeners know exactly where to look. <laughs> Just look up 4.4.5. I think that's the only thing I pronounced properly there. there you go. <laughs> but uh, it states, According as one acts, so does he become. One becomes virtuous by virtuous action, bad by bad action. So it, it's karma is the cause and effect. Now, it, it's kind of fascinating because they state that karma is not fate because man has free will and he creates his own destiny. And uh, it refers to the totality of our actions and their concomitant reactions in this and previous lives, all of which determines our future. And that, to me, is kind of strange, because they're sitting there saying that karma is not fate, and yet they're saying that karma can kick our ass in the next life for what we've done in the previous life. Yeah, I think how it works kind of is like Aristotle's actions... Uh, become habit, habit becomes character. So these actions uh, imprint things into your soul, uh, and that becomes a habit. Those habits make up your character. Your character then will decide to do good or evil, and uh, apparently that happens to you in return, I think, and you carry around those habits and characters into the next life, I believe, because your soul remains the same. Yeah, I think yeah. that's fair. However, the one part where it's a little iffy uh, and and departs from Aristotle is that kind of return, right? That karmic return um, that I don't understand how your badness inside your soul returns badness to you. Well, see, that's 
that's kind of an interesting thing because uh, I mean they even point out that not all your karmas uh, come back to you immediately that some of them will build and build and build and return in either this life or when you get born into another life and they actually put births plural so I mean you could do something just hellaciously bad in this life and then all of a sudden be punished by it three lives later by karma I see so eventually it'll catch up to you but maybe not in this life yeah so moving on we'll, we'll, we'll move beyond karma now let's go into reincarnation which of course is one of their foundation beliefs and I'm not even going to say that dude's name again but this is 4.4.6 and it states after death the soul goes to the next world bearing in mind the subtle impressions of its deeds and after reaping their harvest returns again to this world of action so Basically, there's some sort of uh, place in the, eth the ethereal part of the uh, universe where we also reap something of our harvest, and then, of course, we're sent down to Earth. So I'm halfway thinking you can be punished after you die as well. So in between lives, you, you get some of that karma returned to you. Yeah, yeah, that's what it sounds like when you read this. And, and they go on to explain that... Uh, as we die, we basically get rid of the physical body, and we continue evolving in the inner worlds in our subtle bodies until we again enter birth. Through the ages, reincarnation has been the great consoling element within Hinduism, eliminating the fear of death. Well, you know, I, can, I kind of understand how that would be consoling, right? And I can kind of understand how a belief that you'll meet your family again in the afterlife uh, would be consoling. But the overriding question for me is, is it true? If it's not true, then it can't be consoling. <laughs> you, it's not like you can just believe in it really hard and it'll be true. Yeah. Um, and there's no evidence, obviously, for reincarnation. I don't even know what such evidence would look like. Um, but no one has ever come back, you know, and said, oh, by the way, um, I have these evidences that I lived this past life that can be tracked down and verified and has knowledge. Do you have knowledge of your previous life? I suppose that's a big question. You wouldn't, would you? You, you wouldn't have knowledge. You take the habits with you. So right. basically, it's all about evolving to a better being. So you're taking the habits that you developed before into the new life and trying... Well, you're moving towards... Uh, towards where your moksha is attained, your liberation. You're and moving towards getting off the merry-go-round. So I'm not, I'm not sure what evidence of reincarnation would even look like or how you would design a test uh, to see if people are reincarnated or not. Well, my biggest question is, if reincarnation is truth, then why is it the world's population is growing so exponentially? Where are all these souls coming from if... I mean, shouldn't we have, like, ants dying off in the thousands to uh, to make room for the rest of us? Dead bacteria. Dead bacteria. <laughs> so bacteria have souls now, is what you're telling well, me. Yeah, and they have karmic actions. You can either be a good bacteria or a bad bacteria. <laughs> and the good bacteria are helping me digest my food, the bad if, are trying to... Uh... If you're good, you become a grasshopper or a cow. If you're bad, you end up as a human being. <laughs> That's true. Cows are sacred. So. Yeah, why are cows sacred, by the way? That's a big question. I couldn't find that. I searched for that. Are you telling me you found it? No. I have no <laughs> idea. 
All right, so the third belief is the all-pervasive divinity. And I'm just going to skip the uh, the whole dude's name and everything and, and his entire stating. Basically, he, they uphold that there's a wide array of perspectives on the divine, yet all worship the one. The all-pervasive supreme being hailed in the Upanishads as absolute reality. God is unmanifest, unchanging, and transcendent, the self-god, timeless, formless, and spaceless. This actually was a common belief um, among the nobility and philosophically educated, smart people of the ancient world. Uh, if they, you know, to them it seemed self-evident that there was a god, for the most part, uh, just because there is so much around them that spoke to it and it's hard for them to explain, etc., etc., so the easiest explanation to reach for was of, of gods, right? So you have many gods, but then a, a lot of these educated people think, well, if there are many gods, one of them has to be the leader of them. And it's a short hop, skip, and a jump from there to there's only one god, actually. And these other gods are various aspects of this overall overarching supreme deity. So you can combine polytheism into one monotheism. And that, that was kind of a criticism that... Celsus had against Christians that you guys don't you guys think this monotheism is something new <laughs> it's not <laughs> it's no different from any of the um philosophically educated and and uh, elite thinkers of the time in ancient uh daily life yeah and uh well see that's that's the problem with uh, with Christianity and monotheism in general is they all believe our God is true. We are the first to discover this god is uh, is bringing light to us, and the truth be told. I mean, Akhenaten was coming up with monotheism well before Christianity did. Right, um, and before Judaism. Yeah. Uh, you know, original Judaism was uh, henotheistic, which you mentioned before, where, you know, you uh, admit that there's a, a variety of gods, but you worship only one. You d you're devoted only to one. You still don't piss off the rest of them, but you yeah. um, place your devotion to one. And this is um, encapsulated in the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That implies the existence of other gods. <laughs> if other gods didn't exist, why does he even say it? Oh, my father would say that's because we all worship idols, like the golden calf, so on and so forth. Well, um, then God could just tell us, there are no other gods. <laughs> that's just commandment me. one. I am the only god. But he said, there are no other, you know, don't have any other gods before me. Worship me first and foremost. That's the first commandment. Yeah, I agree with you entirely. Well, at any rate, bringing it back to a head, um, there are actually three worlds that this all-pervasive divinity actually created. The father-mother created uh, the physical universe, which is the first world. The second world is the subtle astral or mental plane of existence in which the divas, angels, and spirits live. So when you die, you get to play with the divas and angels. And the well, third did you, world... Did you say father and mother created the first world? Uh-huh. As in one person? Father mother. This is why it's so just distracting and complex. So they're well, God's a hermaphrodite. Yeah. All right. And yet right. he's married. Okay. <laughs> to himself. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, actually to oh. another god who was two different gods. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, 
The third world is the spiritual universe of the Mahadevas, the great shining beings or Hindu gods. So, of like course, me. you. <laughs> <laughs> like like Leighton and I and the yeah. One True Podcast. We're the One Shining Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. The fourth and uh, final major belief is Dharma. And this comes from Tiri Kural thirty one thirty two and yeah try to look that one up. Mm. Dar- <laughs> Dharma yields heaven's honor and earth's wealth. What is there then that is more fruitful for a man? There is nothing more rewarding than Dharma, nor anything more ruinous than its neglect. And uh, basically, when the God created the universe, he endowed it with order, with laws to govern creation, and Dharma is God's divine law. So pretty much it's the right and righteous path, as we've covered before. Gotcha. Um, But, you know, again, there are many different paths. It's not like there's one scripture that says, here's what you do, here's what you don't do, right? They just kind of give this nebulous idea that here's the path, and you try to be good, and you try to live nice. Um, And and a lot of uh, Hindus have different ideas about how to get there. And I think, in addition to different ideas, I think they would say that those ideas are equally valid or they're just fine. Yeah, they all lead and, to the same place. And see, that's the nice thing is, with Hinduism, it's all about truth. What is truth? And that's the nice thing about this sort of thing. They're very accepting, except when it comes to marriage. You, now, they, uh, there's a caste system, right? In, yeah, but yeah, there's is, a caste system. Is that codified inside the religion, or is that something that was separate? It's part and parcel. It's both. Interesting. Yeah, now uh, I am actually going to go into the uh, the marriage institution because it's very much tied into their religion. And uh, it, it's believed that the un- union between a male and female is so they can pursue their dharma. And, of course, uh, this also includes their artha, which is their possessions, and their kama, which is their physical desires together. So not only do people get married to go with religion and physical possessions and desires. So it, it, it very much encompasses both their uh, their physical and their religious needs. So religion is tied very much into it. So why can't you marry outside your caste then? Well, that has to do a lot with the reincarnation belief. You are higher up on the rung than these others. Oh, so if you marry below your caste, you're taking a backward step in your reincarnation cycle by... Yes. Uh, mixing your karma with someone else's. Yeah. Now, amazingly enough, they have eight different kinds of marriages. And shouldn't shouldn't you then marry a cow? And uh, because a cow is obviously ahead of you on that reincarnation, because it's the sacred animal, right? I'd slap that ass. So <laughs> you just marry the cow and speed <laughs> yourself along. <laughs> well, that would be jumping out of your cast. All right. I'm just trying to get off this, you know, merry-go-round. Yeah, yeah. Well, you think that's a merry-go-round. Wait till you hear about these marriages. I mean, like I said, they have eight different kinds of marriages, and only four of them are good, the the top four. <laughs> now, you have the first marriage, which is the ultimate marriage. It's called the Brahma Viva. And once the boy completes uh, his studenthood, once he uh, becomes eligible to get married, his parents approach the parents or guardian of the girl belonging to a good family in the same class 
and they ask them for the hand of their daughter for their son. There's no dowry, and uh, the girl uh, only comes with two garments and a few ornaments. And this is considered the best marriage of all. So these are essentially arranged marriages. Essentially. So that's, I wonder what the divorce rate in, in this is. I mean, is, is marriage due to the Western idea of love, is that, which is about 50% successful, is that better, or is marriage due to arranged by the you know two parents or four parents, is that more successful? I wonder what see, the divorce rate is for these things. That would actually be an interesting study. I'd like to see that. Well, at any rate, the second type, which is not as good as the first, is called the Daiva Viva. And in this marriage, the girl's family waits for a reasonable period for a suitable man for their daughter, but when nobody turns up, they go looking for a groom in the places where sacrifices are being conducted. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If, if the woman doesn't have a suitor, the parents start going around and searching out these, uh, these religious sites to find somebody to marry their girl. So, um, this poor girl... <laughs> It doesn't have any prospects, so the parents go around the neighborhood knocking down doors and hanging out in churches. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and do you want to find... know why it's not as good as the first one? Because it's degrading for a woman to look for a groom. Because it's not degrading to uh, have your parents find a man for you. Pretty much. Yeah. So the, someone comes, and, or they don't come, and she's all alone, and apparently it's better in these cultures to be married than not. Uh, there's no independent woman, you know. Apparently, you're not complete without a man in these cultures. Is that right? Yeah. You can't. You cannot achieve your karmic or comic or whatever <laughs> sutra <laughs> thing. <The> sutra. <laughs> <laughs> without a man. You mean your dharma is that what your, you're looking? Yeah, that's for? what I'm looking for. Your dharma. Oh. Without a man, uh, and and but it's also uh, you know stigmatized if you go out and you actually you know take matters into your own hands and look out so so the the parents um hang around <laughs> with with you know doe eyes i guess looking for mates for their poor daughter who can't find a man yeah now it, it gets even crazier because the third type is the arsha viva where it, it basically evolved from uh from when uh, they didn't have enough money so the bridegroom gives a cow and a pair of bulls to the guardian of the girl. And, <laughs> and it's because the, the, uh, the parents of the bride couldn't afford the expense of their daughter's marriage at the right time, according to the Brahma rite. So <laughs> This is essentially Johnny Lingo. Pretty close, except the girl is married off to an old sage. And that's better than not being married. Yes. So that's shriveled up balls are better than no balls at all. That's very true. And I'm sure they're dangling around uh, the kneecaps by the time she marries him. So. And there is a, a fourth type of marriage. It gets worse than that? It gets much worse. We're only up to number four. There are eight of these. Oh my god. <laughs> like I said, this is crazy. Alright, so the fourth type, which is still considered alright. We haven't even got to the forbidden types yet. So trading cows for women is is okay. Yep, that right. is the third type. It's it's yep. it's all right. Now the fourth type. This is just before you start getting into forbidden ground. This is still it's, socially acceptable. This is still socially acceptable. 
Basically, the bride's father goes in search for a groom for his daughter. The protection of the bride or daughter is handed over by the father to the bridegroom during the panagrahan ceremony or the acceptance of the bride's hands. So basically, this is the father running around begging for somebody to take his daughter. Please, please take this woman off my hands. Yeah, and basically there's not even a wedding. He just waits until the panagrahan ceremony and then just hands her over and says, okay, she's now in your protection. All right, so no cows and bulls are exchanged. Nope. Uh, and this is kind of the least of the socially acceptable marriage ceremonies in Hinduism. Yeah, the least. Now, the one that is uh, starting to get socially unacceptable is the Gandharva Viva, which is when a man and a woman marry with each other's consent, but not the consent of their family. This is what's known as a love marriage, and it's kind of forbidden. So it's... Um... Not good to elope, but it is okay to exchange a cow for your daughter. Yes. These, this makes total sense. <laughs> I, I can see where they're coming from. Yeah, yeah all right. Uh, uh, check this out. Number six is the Asura Viva, which is the groom is not suitable for the bride, and he doesn't match the girl, but the bridegroom willingly gives as much wealth as he can afford to the bride's parents and relatives. And so he basically buys her. All right. So essentially, this is the Russian bride version of the yeah. of, of Hinduism. Yep. He he yep. really wants he really wants the girl, and uh, the parents don't like it. But he changes their mind with a bunch of money. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly okay. what it is. <laughs> All right, that's great. Right. Number seven is the Rakshasa Viva, where the bride is raped and then he persuades her to marry him. Well, that's Old Testament version of marriage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. So that's not the worst. The worst is the Paishaka Viva. In this type, the girl's wish is not considered with whether she wants to marry or not. Instead, she is forced to marry, and even the bride's family is not giving anything in cash or kind. Uh, it, it's actually prohibited right now. But they used to just toss the girl at somebody. They didn't accept money or anything. They just wanted to get rid of her. How is that different from the least socially acceptable one? No money is exchanged there either. Yeah. Is the bride's feelings taken into consideration in that one? Well, that is more the uh, the family kind of approves of the man. Uh, they're handing over the protection of the girl over to this guy. So now the family doesn't approve of the man, but they're like, boy, I can't keep this woman around anymore. Our daughter's really exactly. outlived her. <laughs> She's outlived her welcome. So uh, we, we really just can't get rid of this girl. Please take her. <laughs> <laughs> and that one's outlawed. That one's been outlawed. It's been prohibited. Uh, excellent. Good. Well, you know, there you have it. Where does marrying a cow fit in there? That must be with the Rakshasa Viva, where the man rapes the cow and then convinces <laughs> it to marry him. <laughs> Not socially acceptable, but still legal. Yeah, still legal. You can gotcha. still rape a woman and then persuade her to marry you. Right. All right, well, uh, you know, a fast way to Nirvana would probably be to marry that cow. <laughs> but you got to rape it first and then continue. <laughs> Right. All right. That goes without saying. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Uh, how would a cow's consent look? 
Does it does it moo at you? Does it give you the eye? How do you tell when the cow wants it? Uh, have you ever seen Top Secret? <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> I, I haven't out. seen too many cows wearing uh, rubber boots. But <laughs> when the cow loves you back. <laughs> That's how you know it was meant to be. All right, all right. Well, well, let's let's move in to the actual gods and goddesses. And uh, this, just to warn you, is all massively symbolic. So all of these images you see of these gods, everything means something. I mean, take uh, Lord Shiva, for example. He is the supreme being. He is continually dissolving and recreating himself in uh, creation, preservation, dissolution, and recreation, just like the whole reincarnation. Now, So he's like a phoenix rising from the ashes. Exactly, exactly. Now, he's come down to the world several times, so, so on and so forth. He was an avatar. Now, if you look at an image and you see that his eyes are only half open, this uh, means that he is within a new cycle of creation and it is emerging when he closes his eyes entirely and the universe dissolves from creation and then when he opens them again that's when the world is created again with his half open eyes that means that it's in the cyclical process that it, it's not beginning and it's not ending it's kind of in the middle how do you know if his eyes are half open or half closed well it depends on if you're depressed so I mean, that's why he's called Shiva the destroyer uh well yeah yeah that that has uh, some confusion in it because people start thinking he's uh, warlike, so on and so forth, but really it just kind of points out to the fact that you have to destroy to create. So we just got to sit around hoping he doesn't close, he doesn't blink, basically. Yeah, yeah. All right. So we got to get this dude some Visine fast. Seriously, this every single symbol in there means something. The, the three matted locks on his head conveys the idea of integration of physical, mental, and spiritual en energies for yoga. He is the master of yoga. I, I mean, it's just insane. So <laughs> we'll move on to Lord Brahma, who is also one of the Godhead, and uh, he symbolizes the reality, the, uh, the what we are in, and he brings forth the creation that uh, that Lord Shiva is making possible. So he's kind of the potentiality that Shiva uses to make reality, I guess. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's actually known as the creator of the universe because he brings to reality what Shiva does. Oh, is he like the workhorse for Shiva? I think he may very well be. So basically, Shiva and Brahma are like Jesus and God talking to each other and creating the world and the universe, right? Yeah, yeah. That's basically it. Yeah, so when Shiva has his eyes open, Brahma's kicking ass and uh, causing explosions in the universe. Well, what happens to Brahma when Shiva closes his eyes? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he takes a nap. Uh, that's, that's when he's resting. So if, if you can't see him, he can't see you. Exactly, exactly. And uh, guess who works along Brahma? That would be Lord Vishnu. And uh, he preserves and sustains the universe. Oh, okay. So Brahma makes it, but he makes it kind of shitty, so Vishnu has to sit there continually repairing it. Yeah, yeah. Brahma's the retarded brother of Vishnu. So 
He, he's doing his little painting in the background, and then Vishnu has to come in. Oh, good job, brother. I, go look in the other room, and then he fixes it. And Vishnu's got his third eye on Shiva, because if that eye is closing, <laughs> he might as well stop repairing. <laughs> exactly. Then he can get lazy again while Vishnu's <laughs> eyes are closed. <laughs> God. Well, all right, whatever. You get the sense that in these ancient religions, people are just fucking sitting around, just writing shit as it comes to them. Yeah. Or perhaps they're on some sort of Indian herbal smoking bong and uh, just writing down in this sort of herb-befuddled trance. Yoga, they, maybe it's meditation. All meditation. Well, they were probably high now. You know, it, it's kind of funny. I gotta, I gotta end the uh, the whole Hinduism thing on kind of a story from a woman I dated a long time ago. Now she was Indian, and uh, I mean, she was a great woman. Uh, I, I, now that I've studied Hinduism, I can understand a lot of the aspects as to why our relationship fell apart. Uh, but she, we were, uh, we were in this uh, store, and I was looking up, and uh, there was an in, a Hindu picture up on the wall with this uh, goddess standing on the chest of another god. And I looked at her and I asked her, I'm like, what exactly is going on here? And she says, oh, that's Kali. And my first response is, you mean like from Indiana? And Indiana Jones? <laughs> <laughs> you should have reached into her heart and pulled it out while it was still pumping. Yeah, yeah, that, that was my first reaction, was to tear her heart out of its yes, rib cage. exactly. Uh, well, as she explained it, um, Kali is actually Durga, who is the mother goddess. Now, Kali is the dark side of Durga. And uh, she went nuts, started slaughtering humans, went completely bitchy. It must have been her time of the month or something. And uh, what happened is, is her husband, Shiva knowing that it would be completely disrespectful for Kali to step on him as she was charging through the world, killing left and right he laid down in front of her path and in her rage she stepped on him and it was because of that disrespect that she cleared her mind and became Durga, the mother goddess again well he laid down in front of her that was his fault yeah, but it was disrespectful for her to step on him. <laughs> so, so she's not entirely irrational while she's PMSing. Yes, not entirely. If, if as soon as she steps on her husband, that just cracks it, and all of a sudden she's all apologies and well, back to the mother goddess. Well, uh, listeners, take that tip. Yeah, that that's exactly what I'm going to do next time I have a woman screaming at me. I'm just going to lay down on the floor and just kind of motion her to step on me. <laughs> She'll, in her rage and, and unthinking fury, she'll step on you and go, Oh, sorry. Sorry about that. You are absolutely right. Yeah. I was overreacting when I was slaughtering thousands. That Thanks. was so disrespectful of me to kill all those human beings. <laughs> it, and it took me stepping on you to uh, point that out. Yeah, yeah. So I, I had to end this whole... Uh... Hinduism podcast on that because I'm still scratching my head over that one. That's impressive. That is an impressive story. And I'm sure it has a kernel of truth somewhere in there. We just haven't quite interpreted it correctly yet. Yes, yes. And uh, if I was still dating her and if she was still in contact with me, I would ask her. You should email her. Call her up. I can't. 
she broke it off because we were still friends afterwards and she gave me that whole spiel about it's just too hard on me so I have to break off contact send her a cow <laughs> can't I just rape her and then convince her to marry me that is socially acceptable, right? No, that's the unacceptable. Oh, that's the unacceptable one. That's the the one just above the last one where they're just throwing the daughter out of the house. That's right. That's right. Well, it's not the last one, so. Yeah, that's true. So it's a step above. <laughs> God. There may be a reason why her family didn't approve of me and why she was hiding me from her family. What you should have done, if you ever want to get rid of a woman, you just say, look, uh, unless you convert to Mormonism... I can't continue this relationship. Oh, God, that's a beautiful idea. And, you know, when she starts looking into it, it'll be like, oh, my God, this is so fucking insane. How could anybody believe it? I believe in a, a goddess with eight arms, but this shit is insane. <laughs> Joseph Smith was a crackpot. <laughs> Problem solved. Yeah. that's so Mormonism solves all problems. I like this idea. All right. So that wraps up Hinduism. Um, I'm so glad you clarified that, Leighton. I know exactly uh, what Hinduism is now. Yeah, yeah. If any of our read or listeners can tell what Hinduism is just after a cursory glance, God bless you. You are much smarter than I am. Listen, what we may have to do is actually, if one of our listeners is a Hindu... <laughs> yeah, we're going to need you to Please, come on here come and clarify. On and explain it. All right. Mother of Christ, what the what the hell is stepping on your husband? How is that disrespectful? How, I don't understand. All right, uh, we'll hopefully see you guys next week. Probably not.